Welcome to Nothing Ventured, a podcast exploring some of the lesser heard stories in tech and venture. Join me, Aris Shah, as I speak to founders, investors, and ecosystem operators in the UK and beyond. Welcome to Nothing Ventured with me, Aris Shah. Today, I'm really pleased to have Kirsty McDonald with me. Kirsty is principal at Jamjar Investments, the venture fund created by the founders of Innocent Drinks after their exit to Coca-Cola. At Jamjar, Kirsty invests in digital challenger brands with a portfolio that includes household names and unicorns such as Oatly, Deliveroo and Babylon Health. Kirsty is an active angel with Alma Angels and a mentor at Diversity VC. Kirsty, I'm really, really glad that you could join us. Welcome. Super happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Amazing. So let's start off with a little bit more about your kind of personal background. I mean, after actually a fairly sort of short period of time, a couple of years at Unilever as part of their Future Leaders program, you joined Jamjar. I'd really like to understand why the interest in startups and venture and kind of what sparked your interest in, in getting into the ecosystem? Yeah, of course. I guess I, I ended up in venture really serendipitously. Yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky because of it. I actually, to go right back, I, I studied economics at university and then I did a, a master's in, in global politics and I always thought I'd go into policy. But I suddenly, it suddenly occurred to me it's probably easier to do private sector first than public rather than public-private. So I decided to, you know, get a grad job in, in some kind of big corporate. I didn't want to do banking because everyone that did economics at my undergraduate did banking. And to be honest, I didn't like them that much. So I decided not to go that route. Didn't want to do consulting because it just seemed a bit kind of academic. And I kind of just wanted to work for a, a company that, that made something that I understood that was kind of a physical product that I used. Really kind of liked the idea of working for a consumer company. So that kind of led me to Unilever. Two years of Unilever, you know, it's an amazing business and I think they're really leading the way in, a, in lots of stuff, but it wasn't really for me. And actually Jamjar approached me on LinkedIn and it was actually back in the days where people really didn't get jobs through LinkedIn. Like not not, when, not many of my friends actually had a LinkedIn profile. So, so they were kind of amazed that, you know, Katie basically, one of the partners just messaged me and said, you know, we're looking for somebody to join our investment team. We'd interviewed a ton of ex-bankers and a ton of ex-consultants, which was kind of the normal route into VC. They didn't quite have the kind of consumer understanding, you know, do you want to come interview? I didn't really understand what VC was, but was like, that. I mean, that sounds great. I absolutely love Innocent. I think what they built is amazing. Why not? Oh, then it was a very long and very horrendous interview process. I, th- I think overall it was kind of something like 12 hours, maybe maybe 15 hours worth of interviews, which to be fair, when you're kind of increasing the size you know it's just the partners at that point so they're increasing the size of the team by 25 percent. you probably would spend quite a lot of time thinking about your first hire but actually kind of along the way they like massively sold me on it and I just remember thinking wow if I don't get this job I'm going to be devastated and also probably not many other VC firms would, would take me because I was coming from an industry background and, and like I say not not from the classic roots into VC so actually there's kind of two kind of want to push and want to pull in terms of why I was interested in, in startups and venture. The push, I think, and no disrespect to my old employer, Unilever, like I say, they, they do some great stuff well, but they do not do innovation well. And, you know, I was actually at the time working in the yellow fats category, very glamorous. So it was spreads, which kind of flora and Bertolli, et cetera. And, and it was a category that double digit decline, you know, it was a really tough space. And I, I, I learned a ton in terms of commercials, but quite depressing, you know, when your, your target for your brand is to decline by 5% a year and that's beating the category by about 10%. So <laughs> I was kind of ready to do something a bit more kind of innovative and growth focused. And 
also, you know, at that, that stage, not only is it, you know, you're, you're really fighting over market share, you're, you're not doing anything that's kind of building a new category and, like I say, being really innovative. And I just thought, I, 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 this isn't, this isn't really where I want to be. Like I want to be somewhere that's doing new propositions and creating new categories and working with people that are, are so passionate about, about these new things that they're bringing to market for consumers and, 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 and changing things that way. So I guess it was a bit of a, God, I've tried one end of the spectrum. I really want to go to the other end of the spectrum. And then obviously, you know, Jam Job really sold me on, on their, on their fund throughout the interview process and, you know, like I said, I love the innocent story. What Adam, Rich and John built with, is amazing. And I love the fact that I work so closely with them and they're also brilliantly different and, and excellent at, at what they do. And I love that, you know, they're, they're exited entrepreneurs that are now funders. That they're, they're, they're entrepreneurs first and foremost. They're not financiers. Um, and so much to learn from them. And yeah, the other thing goes back to what I was originally saying, like, you know, get to, getting to work with, founders who are super passionate about what they're doing they be they bring really new innovative propositions that are serving the consumer 10x better than what is currently out there and kind of working with these founders and backing them like that's amazing and yeah if you can't tell i love my job <laughs> not only do you love your job you've basically been been doing it your entire post kind of graduate career right yeah oh my goodness yeah that was um i joined jamdor end of 15 yeah oh my goodness almost six years yeah, well over half a decade. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I often talk about the decline of the career because, you know, we don't tend to stick in the same job for as long as we used to, but you managed to land the you know the one job that you love. It's really interesting, actually, a couple of things you said there. So firstly, there's I think there's probably a lesson to be learned by founders as well in that, you know, if you went through a 12-hour interview process, you know, don't expect to go have a chat with a, a VC and get funded sort of in, in the first meeting. I mean, that happens every now and again, and we know we all know sort of the stories around that. But the reality is it, it is a bit like an interview process, realistically, right? It's a bit like funds, you know, a, a VC getting to know the entrepreneur and vice versa and, and seeing if there's a fit and a meld and a mold. And equally, I think the other thing that struck me whilst you're speaking is, you know, you talked about Unilever and not necessarily being in innovative. I have to admit, I just started like a paleo type diet. So like just thinking about margarines is probably, you know, bringing me out in, in hives or something. But, you know, they, they equally do have a corporate venture fund. So it's really interesting how many of those sort of corporate beer myths have basically moved from trying to innovate internally to buy in innovation, I guess, via their funds. But actually, one of the things I wanted to understand more is, you know, on Jam Jar itself, What's differentiated you guys as a fund today? And you touched on some of those things, I think, earlier. But what, what would you say has been really kind of that defining differentiation for Jam Jar as a fund? Yeah, so, so we focus only on consumer brands, both tech and non-tech across a ton of different sectors. But, you know, if the marketing dollars are going to individual consumers and not to businesses, you know, that, that's technically in our wheelhouse. And, and we're one of the only funds to do that. There's a couple more now, but definitely when I joined, we were basically the only kind of focused consumer investor in the UK. And I think, you know, we're definitely still one of the most active. I think the other thing which which I mentioned, which is, again, surprisingly rare, and it was surprisingly rare when I joined, and it's still actually surprisingly rare, is that, you know, the, the, the partners are entrepreneurs first, not financiers. So, you know, they, they founded, scaled, and exited one of the most kind of impactful challenger brands of the last 20 years. And I think, you know, the fact that they... Like I say, they, they, they founded it, they run it, and, and they were the same people that were running it when, when it was bought by Coke is actually really quite unusual. And, and they went through some 
huge ups, obviously, and, and you know it, it was a brilliant story in the end. But they also went through some 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 massive downs, and I think that experience is obviously something that can really be useful to our founders, and you know they they really understand the struggles that you go on. And I guess the other thing that that kind of differentiates us slightly, although I'm not really sure that entrepreneurs care particularly, is that up till now the funds that we've invested have all been from the the partners themselves. So we basically used a portion of the funds that were generated from Innocent selling to Coke in 2013 when Adam, Rich and John were, were full owners. So it just meant that the funding that we provide was was more long term. You know, there was no kind of deadline on returning that to other people. And, you know, Innocent was a 15 year journey and, and we're expecting, you know, a fair few of our investments to be the similar. So that makes a lot of sense because you don't have the same constraints. You're not, you know, necessarily trying to raise a fund whilst deploying a fund. You're not necessarily constrained time-wise in terms of exits from your portfolio codes, as you just mentioned. I just wanted to pull on something that you mentioned there as well. Like there are more consumer funds these days. Equally, I think there are more and more potential consumer brands coming out because, you know, everything is a digital brand these days. So what does it even mean to be a digital brand, given the whole world is is moving in that direction? What changes as everyone is fighting to be a brand in a way that probably wasn't the case 10, maybe even 15 years ago? Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. You know, you've got old school kind of offline brands moving into the digital space. And, and actually, you've also got it the opposite way around. You've got kind of fast growth digital brands opening up retail sites and pop-up stores and, and new distribution channels. So, so everything's kind of merging into one. And, and also it's, you know, it's interesting you thinking about another dimension is, you know, this whole kind of prosumer movement where companies like, you know, Stripe and Monday.com, yeah, various other kind of professional brands that you use at work, they're actually, you know, they are con- brands themselves and they're targeting the individual users that, that use them, not just the, the businesses that, that sign up to them. So it really is kind of, kind of mashing together. I guess, from our perspective, like, you know, digital brands are, I guess they're, they're born online. So it's not that their DNA is inherent in line. And, and you know, they, they might move their product or service or whatever they're providing into some other channels later on. But, but the initial crux and kind of heritage of the company is born online. I think the other thing is they sell their product or service or whatever they're doing for the consumer directly to the consumer. So there's no middleman, whether that middleman is an online retailer, an offline retailer, or anything else. They they are directly in contact with their consumers. And that's super important in terms of kind of speed of innovation. And also, obviously, the, the kind of consumer experience that you provide, because you're just way more in control of it. And I think that also feeds into the final point is that, that to me, they have to have access to live data on consumer behavior, both through their own sales channels, but also their marketing channels on, you know, Instagram or Facebook, whatever it might be. And, you know, they can tell you at the click of a button at any time of day, if you ask them how their consumers, who their consumers are, how they're behaving, and then how they're feeding that data back in to, you know, have a, a better product or service in the future. And I, I think, yeah, that those three things, so born online, directly in contact with their consumers, no barrier between them. And then using that data they get to get from that relationship very effectively to kind of improve their product or service for the future. That's what I would say is is kind of a digital digital brand today. Yeah. Again, it's really interesting as you were talking, I was thinking, because I I was thinking through some of the portfolio codes at at Jamjar and 
I think traditionally when one thinks of consumer, one thinks of consumer products. So again, you know, innocent drinks, one thinks of Coca-Cola, one thinks of Nestle, one thinks of, of, uh, fast moving consumer goods, right? I guess is, is probably, you know, from back in my days, manufacturing stuff. It was stuff that you then sold to consumers, but actually consumer now means more than just stuff it can mean services it can mean things like education it can mean things like you know to your point earlier whether it's monday.com or rome research or whatever which you know or notion for that matter which are you know products that inherently are valuable within a business environment but just as just just as valuable i guess to a an individual consumer as well right so was that an evolution, do you think, over the course of the last sort of five, 10 years? Is that something that you've seen a marked change in? Has that accelerated? What What are your kind of thoughts on that? I think it'd be super interesting to just deconstruct what it means to be consumer, let alone a consumer brand. So actually, we've, we've always had a really broad interpretation of what consumer means. So, you know, I spent, you know, definitely in the early days, I spent a lot of time saying, no, we don't do just F&B. No, we don't just do kind of FMCG products. It's anything with a and consumer brand, which is essentially, you know, where are the marketing dollars go, going to? Are they targeting individual consumers and, and people, or are they targeting businesses and you're trying to get in contact with the, you know, the businesses, software teams? If it's individual consumers, that is technically within our remit. So it's always been very broad for us. And I think, you know, I remember quite early on, I, I met somebody who was a, at another fund and, you know, he said, oh, you're investors in Deliveroo and that's not consumer. And I, to me, it was just like completely flummoxing. So I was like, I mean, it's not B2P. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, like I say, I think, I think it's just a, a kind of people just, when they think consumer, they think FMCG. And actually, I always used to think it was potentially because people, a lot of, and we can touch on this later, but a lot of people in VC were from the banking world and they separated, you know, TMT from consumer and that was a, a you know all the e-commerce businesses basically went into tmt not consumer and, and maybe it was it was that kind of thinking that that kind of then came in came into vc but you know i i just constantly asked like where are the marketing dollars going to are they is it going to individuals in which case you know that potentially is in our remit and if it's going to businesses it, it's not I think that's an incredibly powerful and very simple way of understanding it, right? So founders out there, if you are looking for investment from Jamjar, you need to be thinking about where are your marketing dollars going to? And if they're not going to an individual, then, you know, probably not worth you having a chat with Kirsty. And hopefully they're not going just directly into Facebook's pocket. That's on my other path. Well, it's where the marketing dollars <laughs> are mostly just going to Mark Zuckerberg. But anyway, that's a separate point. So that's an entirely sort of, I think that's another podcast in and of itself, given that everything that's going on at the moment. But just to take that actually a little bit further, right? So just to understand more about kind of the investment thesis beyond the consumer. So, you know, what stages do you invest at? And I'd be really intrigued to understand beyond the where are the marketing dollars going to, what has to be there for you to in, invest in in a business? Is it the team? Is it the traction? Is it the tech? Is it the market? Is it something? Is it all of those or something else altogether? Sure. So we typically invest kind of pre-seed up to A as the initial check. We, we have done later stage where we still think there's a 10x opportunity, but the sweet spot is at the early stage. And really crudely, we're kind of looking for people, product potential is how I break it down. So, so people is kind of, you know, how brilliant do we think the team is? And, and we have actually 15 things, believe it or not, 15 quite points really that sit into kind of five different buckets. Yeah. Five different buckets, but three kind of sub points in each, each bucket. And these cover everything from kind of 
consumer understanding and product vision to commercial instincts and team building to kind of fundraising ability. And, you know, we're, we're essentially looking for spikes in the founding team. So no founder is going to have all of these things. Like, I mean, I guess it's theoretically possible, but I've, I've never met anyone that has. So we just, you know, we'd much rather have someone that's brilliant, a few things, and isn't particularly good at, at others, but they can fill those gaps and they're self-aware enough to fill those gaps. What we don't really want, and, and I think can be slightly dangerous, is somebody that's kind of average across all of them, but they're not really excelling in, in a certain area. So it's, it's kind of exceptionalness in a few areas that, that we're looking for. So we, so we form a view on the team throughout our investment process, basically, and, and kind of decide where we think their strengths are and if those strengths are high enough or in the right areas. Then product, which is, you know, will consumers or do consumers love the product? Which is, you know, there's a there's obviously a high level of subjectivity in here. So so part of it is, you know, what does the team think? Does the team understand the the unique positioning? Is there a, a strong USP that, that we agree with? And then, of course, it's, you know, what does the data say? We spend a lot of time looking at repeat rate and word of mouth because it's, you know, that's that's essentially if you love a product, you'll come back and buy it again. You'll tell your friends about it. So so those are really important for me. But then there's obviously other stuff in terms of, you know, NPS reviews, inherent growth rate, CPA, and kind of looking at different channels, conversion rate, et cetera, et cetera. So as much data as possible to kind of understand do consumers love this product obviously at the pre-seed stage there's nothing to go on so, so it's very difficult and that's where it becomes slightly more subjective on the what the internal team really thinks rather than relying on ex- external data i'm more happy post-launch <laughs> get just even if it's just a few months worth of data it really helps me kind of assess something and then potential which is essentially do we think the company has a realistic chance of becoming a hundred million pound business and that really is a function of kind of market size and structure, margin structure, defensibility of products, competitive landscape, regulation sometimes. You know, again, it's, there's lots of different things that go in that area to form a view on do we think this has the potential to become big enough? There's also some stuff that we they look on kind of timing structure. So timing is, is this the right time for the business? Is it maybe too late or too early for whatever innovation it's, it's bringing to market? And then structure is, you know, do we believe we can make a 10x here? So I think, you know, what's really interesting is that we see a a ton of stuff and often we think people great product great consumers really love the product but actually we can't quite get there on that 100 million business especially i don't know if it's a consumer thing because like i said i don't look at particularly b2b things but there seems to be a lot of consumer business that we see that oh we think this could we think this could because exit for you know a good number maybe like 30 million and, and make the founder a lot of money but it just doesn't quite fit our, our strategy so it really is kind of all those things together that we need to consider as a side point like that's one of the things I find hardest about this job is the saying no's because actually you spend your entire time saying no because you know we receive 250 business plans a month and we invest in less than one a month so that's a lot of no's and yeah that's definitely the thing that I like least about it. I think a lot of ink has been spilled on that point, right? And, you know, 250 decks a month over, so 3,000-ish a year, you know, to invest in 10, maybe 15 at, at most, I think obviously gives listeners a fairly good idea of really what venture metrics are all about, right? It is it is very much power law. It's about finding those businesses that fit your thesis that can return a large enough 
amount to carry, you know, to carry those that quite frankly aren't going to make it. And I think you and I have talked about businesses that have that kind of, you know, the, the sort of potential that's good, but it's not great. And I spend a lot of time in kind of my job, as it were, talking to founders from the other side, sort of convincing them or explaining to them why venture might not be certainly at this stage, kind of the right thing. And you know, the other thing that we try and drive home, I, I guess, a lot is whatever traction you can show, whatever data you can point to is always going to be better than nothing, right? So, you know, very few founders are going to come in and raise money on the back of a deck and nothing else, right? You know, they need to be able to show, even if that traction is, well, we, we've managed to hire these people, right? That's traction. Or, you know, we have some signups, that's some traction or, or whatever it might be, or we've made a product, here's a sample, you, you can taste it, rather than we've got an idea for some tea bags that, you know, we'll, we'll ship you once you've sent us your check. So I think that's super interesting. I think it's really important for people to understand that kind of venture dynamic and the reality of trying to raise money within from venture capital, because ultimately the return profile needs to be there for it to make sense. Yeah, the return profile also, you know, it's the... You've got to want that same endpoint. And I think people, people can often forget that you can make more money as a founder often just by, by not taking venture money, not diluting, being a bit more master of your own destiny. And, and, and yeah, maybe having a, a smaller exit, but you own more of the company. And, you know, that's just, if not more valid. And, you know, maybe I'm shooting myself in the foot a bit, but, you know, venture funds sell stuff as well. They're selling money. That's what Richard, one of the Jamdo partners always said. And I, I think, Founders can often overfund and to the detriment, to their personal economic detriment if they give away too much of their company. So, you know, it's venture is one path, but it's not the only path. And it definitely is not the the be all best path, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've had a couple of conversations on on this podcast, one in particular with Flavia from Juice Ventures, where, you know, they, they've got now a revenue-based finance product, and there's quite a few of these obviously out there. The ability to take non-dilutive financing, especially actually for consumer brands, has grown massively over the course of the last few years with Clearco and Uncapped and, and others. And to your point, not every business needs to be venture-backed. You know, the, the reality is that some businesses can be great businesses without having to go through that massive rapid growth. And again, to your point, it can have a very, very detrimental effect because if you aren't on board with that style of growth, then you're going to struggle to build your business in a way that is meaningful for you and and potentially to see the outcome that you want as well. So I think that's great advice. I think everyone should always think twice about and whether it's venture capital or whether it's any form of external financing, like be really clear that you're aligned on the outcomes. One of the other things you just said there about, you know, we're selling money. I think, again, one of the things that I drive home with with the founders I speak to is, you know, there's this habit of saying we're giving away equity. You're not. You're selling equity. And if you're selling something, there is a value attached to it. And there is a reason that someone is purchasing it, right? It's to see a return on that value. So I think I think that's a great way of looking at it from the other side of the table that, you know, from a venture capital perspective, yeah. you're selling the money. That's a great switch in phrase to say that you're selling equity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, 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 you'd be surprised to raise the eyebrows I get when I drop yeah, that one in there. Yeah, yeah, it definitely focuses the mind. Yeah, no, for sure. So, you know, you, you spoke earlier about the fact that one of the great things about Jamjar was that you were masters of your own destiny because you were, you were effectively investing the funds from the exit of Innocent Drinks. So I know that that may have changed a little bit. So do you want to talk a little bit about what's going on? You've, you've raised a separate fund. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, we have, which we've just taken on some external capital as, as well as capital from, from the Jamjar partners, which we've always, always invested. And yeah, we talked about this for a while, to be honest, you know, ever since I joined Jamjar, this kind of question of should we raise an external fund has always come up and there's, there's pros and cons against it. Ultimately, we, we kind of did decide this was the right time to go for it. And, and to be honest, it was about, it was about impacts and just having more impacts. And, and I think with more firepower, we can, we can write slightly larger checks. So I think we're still going to stay, you know, at the early stage, but I think just put slightly more, in, more into every company, maybe lead a few more rounds, have more capacity to, to follow on as well. You know, in, in some of our, our super big companies, that ability has tapped out previously. And also, you know, we thought it was the right time to bring more expertise on through our kind of external investor base, which can also really help our portfolios and kind of go beyond the innocent expertise and, and kind of offer more non-financial help. So it's also a kind of a broadening of, of, of the network. So yeah, it's super exciting. Yeah, it's, it's going to be the same strategy and, and we're going to, you know, not, nothing's really changed that much, to be honest, in, internally at Jamjar. We've hired a brilliant FD. But, you know, the, the processes and the focus and the culture are all staying the same. Very glad you've hired a uh, brilliant FD. I think that's uh, <laughs> that's some that's something that uh, exactly that, you, probably. <laughs> yeah, that that's something that many many ventures should do more of. And and if they want to do that, they can of course just drop me a line. So, Kirsty, I, <laughs> I I wanted to also explore a bit about sort of some of the things that you're doing outside of Jamjar because not necessarily intentionally, but a lot of our guests have come from a somewhat diverse background and we've explored some of the themes within that especially kind of given the state of venture at the moment there's been an explosion of capital explosion of emerging managers i think you know we are moving towards further democratization of access we're not there yet i would argue by any stretch of the imagination so you know exploring some of those other things alma angels is you know it's dedicated to leveling leveling the playing field for female founded startups and female entrepreneurs and you've been an angel with them since you know the beginning of this year and, and a mentor with diverse CVC since 2016. How do you think the ecosystem has evolved in terms of inclusion and where do you think we're heading? I mean, especially, you know, 2016 to today and then and then from here on in. Hmm. Well, firstly, d- disclaimer, I haven't actually made an investment yet through, through Alma. I'm trying to figure out my kind of angel strategy, I guess, so that it doesn't conflict with Jamjar. And I think I'm probably going down the line of kind of potentially backing kind of B2B businesses that provide services to consumer brands. So kind of e-commerce enablement type stuff, which means that there won't be any conflict with, with jam jars investing because they're B2B businesses, but it'll also be potentially useful for a lot of jam jars companies. So so that's what I'm currently thinking, but I need to do some some more kind of work on it. But yeah, I, I think what Alma are doing is amazing. And I think Deepali, Kirsten and Kristen and, and David have done an amazing job. But yeah, g- going back to your main question, I guess I guess the, the the kind of standard answer to this is it's moved on, but there's still a long way to go. Is is kind of what often everyone says. I, I guess maybe more more interesting way to tackle it is maybe I'll, I'll I'll tell you three kind of things that I'm happy about and show that you know everything's moving forward, and then I'll I'll tell you three areas where actually I think actually I've got some concern. I think things are potentially moving backward, and then the conclusion is you know I'm I don't quite know where that leaves us, and I'm, I'm potentially not as hopeful as as some other people might be and I think there needs to be a the answer to the question shouldn't be we're moving forward and we'll get there there's some way to go I think actually there's there's something that's happening that to me there's there's alarm bells that means that we we potentially could even be moving backwards so I guess three things that I'm happy about and and definitely I think are things to be celebrated is I guess on the investor side just anecdotally you know I mentioned when I joined that 
everyone was basically an ex-banker or an ex-consultant. There really wasn't a variety of backgrounds at all in investing. And I think now you're increasingly seeing people come from, from lots of different backgrounds. So obviously I was kind of ex-industry, which was really unusual at the time, but you know, there's a lot of there's increasingly kind of ex-entrepreneurs. There's also lots of people from sales roles and product roles at scale-ups that are getting into venture. There's, you know, ex-journalists. We've actually got two on our team. There's even kind of ex-government people. There's ex-lawyers. Like, it's increasingly not just TMT, Goldman Sachs bankers, which I think is, is really good. And, and that's beneficial. And hopefully that will continue moving in the right direction. I think the other thing that's really amazing to see is that, you know, some incredible initiative, initiatives started by some amazing people that are really getting the recognition they deserve. So... You mentioned Alva, obviously, in Diversity VC. There's also Hustle Crew run by Amadesi that's doing amazing stuff on tech companies and, and they're kind of making sure that they're, they're kind of welcoming places to work. There's 10 by 10x, which is a, a community of, of black VCs that my colleague Ella is involved with, which is doing some great stuff. There's Black Seed VC that's doing some amazing stuff based down in Brixton, like you know, there's a lot of these organizations that I think are getting some some really kind of well overdue recognition. And, and, and it's just like, great to see that. And hopefully, again, that'll continue. And it's awesome. And the other thing that I thought is just needs to be called out is that Marshmallow, the insure tech, I think, I think just reached unicorn status. And it's, and it's the first one run by black founders in the UK. And I just think that's amazing. And yeah, something to celebrate, again, massively overdue, but brilliant. So those are all like, you know, really positive things. I, I think, then I think it's worth, you know, talking, I guess, on the flip side, three things that I guess I'm less happy about. And I think potentially move in some areas we're, we're moving backwards. And I think one of them, and I, I've always had this kind of systemic worry about VC is that you can often end up giving money to people that pitch well, not people that run businesses well, <laughs> because obviously you just, you just have, you just hit the pitch. You, you know, it, it's quite hard to really get under the skin of their business. And you know, there's always that, you know, once you made the investment, the kind of open the kimono moment where you kind of had the first board meeting and you kind of understand a bit more about what's going on. And like I say, the people that pitch well are often people, not, not all the time, not definitely not all the time, but, but often are people from quite a, quite a privileged background who kind of have the confidence to pitch well. And also they're appealing to, to people like them who are in the positions of power. And so I just think that, that worry about, backing good salesmen and not necessarily good operators I think that is a problem for for diversity and the reason I'm concerned that's getting worse is that as the industry gets more competitive and decisions are made much quicker and you hear about people putting term sheets down within a few hours like people do then start relying on their instincts which are prone to biases and not really getting under the hood of the business and you know doing that really kind of deep that you want to do so my concern is actually that movement in the industry potentially could harm diversity if we're, if we're not careful and we're not thinking about things in, in a kind of robust manner. I think the second thing that I would potentially, I think hasn't moved forward, I don't know if it's moved backwards, but I definitely would say it hasn't moved forward, is that when we think about diversity, we think a lot, I mean, you know, we're often thinking about gender and ethnicity and sexual orientation. Not that much is, is talked about in terms of kind of the working classes and the kind of educated people that don't go to, don't go to university and, and kind of the background of people they grew up where they grew up and you know I think there's a lot of reports that came out I think last year on social mobility in the UK and that is basically going nowhere slash going backwards 
And I think the conversation in VC is, is not around the working classes. It's, it's around gender, ethnicity and, and, and sexual orientation lines. And I think we need to be really, really careful about that. And I think that is also an area that the pandemic has made much worse as obviously school children are spending, have to spend more time kind of at home. I just think that social mobility agenda across the whole country and, and also, you know, that will affect VC. It is getting worse. And then the final thing I'd say, and it's, it's a broader macro point again, is that I think the kind of the culture wars that the government is currently stoking for their own kind of political gain, I think, I think, you know, that's, that's got a real risk of making the UK seem a not particularly friendly place for people to be in, you know, that already had the, the kind of Brexit connotations. And I, I think, you know, that the current political conversation on a ton of this stuff isn't making us seem like the most friendly outlooking country. And that again has, has a big impact on, on people that live here already and kind of how they feel seeing this public discourse play out. And also people that are thinking about moving here to work. There's a ton of other stuff as well, but I, I think not to end on a really, uh, on a, on a depressing note, but yeah, that to me, it's not as, oh yeah, it's moving forward, but moving forward slowly. Actually, I think some areas, yes, but some areas actually there's little to no progress slash we, we might even be moving backward. So this was very unexpected. For the listeners, it's currently November 2021 as we're recording this podcast. I just want to touch on a couple of things that you raised there and maybe give you some hope <laughs> as well. Yes, please. <laughs> on a now word, I sound really dreary. <laughs> no, look, I mean, there is no doubt that obviously those positive things that you mentioned are great. We have other sort of activities and initiatives like included. And as I said, there's, you know, just a burgeoning number of emerging managers and, and equally, you know, diversity creeping into the ecosystem in the way that you spoke about. There was a recent study, I think, that showed 45% of VC dollars or VC, VC pounds maybe in the UK went to entrepreneurs educated in the private school system, whilst only 8% of individuals in the UK go to private schools. And, you know, I, I, I'm one of those 8% for sure. And I think it's all sort of very much centered around, I think, the you know, the regional imbalance between London and, and the rest of the country as an example, and to your point around working class as well. So I am currently working on an initiative with, with someone who, unfortunately, I can't quite announce yet, or by the time this podcast probably releases, we will have announced, but we are looking at creating a prize that is not funding, is purely grant-based, effectively a charitable grant to entrepreneurs, specifically from underprivileged working class backgrounds, because we actually don't think it's education. We don't think it's upbringing. We don't think it's necessarily even your social surroundings that hold, hold you back. It's literally the privilege of being able to take a risk because you have access to capital and access to a safety net ultimately. And often that's what stops someone who has come from, you know, an underprivileged background, maybe somewhere, you know, from the inner city somewhere whose parents are both, you know, working one, two, maybe three jobs, and they may have not completed school or not been able to because they're looking after younger siblings or whatever it might be. But, you know, quite frankly, literally just having someone say to them that, look, we believe that this idea of yours has legs or can do something and, and here's some cash, no strings attached. And we think that that may well be quite powerful because I think the lack of strings obviously is, is something that is required. 
And by doing that, you also start opening up the ecosystem in terms of their access to the same people that you and I have access to. And I think that that is definitely something that I think we will see more and more of in smaller forms or bigger forms. And I know, you know, I think James Routledge from Sanctus has has told his story previously and Doug Scott sort of backed him at, at that time. And I think... It's very easy to get caught up in, certainly in the London bubble, but certainly in the VC and and tech bubble that everyone kind of looks or if not looks the same, certainly speaks very similarly to your earlier point. And yeah, so hopefully that gives you, (laughs) that gives you some hope that, that maybe, maybe there is a a path to change. Definitely. And actually, you know, just, just hearing you, you know, I think we have, you know, the the last 20 months or how long the pandemic's been going on for has, has, has been awful and you know horrendous for, for so many people but there is also a real opportunity now now we we can prove that you don't have to be in this focus in London like you know th- this is actually a real opportunity to bridge you know the, the north south divide and, and various different other kind of regions that aren't as, as strong as London so that so that's like a really positive thing that I, I think you know government and, and other um, private companies as well should should really be be looking at and also you're so right about what you say about the privilege of being able to to take a risk and, and found a company and obviously having that safety net fall back on that so many people don't have. And, you know, it's, I've always been really interested in, in UBI and, and what that means for kind of civil society and, and, and individuals. And, you know, I obviously, you know, well, there's a ton of arguments against it, obviously, but it also brings about the most amazing creativity in, in, in kind of areas that, that have tried it. Because of you say you can take that risk, and I think you know humans are inherently creative people if they're put in the right environment, and and one of those things that can simulate that environment is, is having that net. So yeah, I'm, again, like UBI is a, is a thing that you know a few years ago people would have thought you were absolutely mad as a hatter, and, and increasingly it's coming up a, a, a bit more in discourse. So and has actually been effectively trialed throughout the pandemic. Mm, yeah. You know, in the US, the UK and, and many other, yeah, many yeah, other yeah. countries, right? And it didn't lead to a collapse. It led, it led to, I think we've seen more growth in entrepreneurship and in business building over the, over the last 12 months than I think possibly ever before. And we all know that actually in, in times of kind of scarcity or in times of need, you actually see some of the best businesses being built. So hopefully, you know, the vintage 2020, 2021 entrepreneurs and companies coming out are going, are going to be quite incredible. Kirsty, I cannot thank you enough for have, having joined me today. It's been absolutely amazing speaking to you. Where can our listeners find you? Are you online or where's the best place for them to look for you? Is that Twitter, LinkedIn or elsewhere? LinkedIn or just my email. It's Kirsty at jamjarinvestments.com. I, it, my inbox is a bit crazy, but I, I promise I, w- I will try to get back to you. So yeah, that's probably me. I, I don't actually have Twitter, dinosaur. Yeah. Instagram, LinkedIn or, or email. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kirsty. Really appreciate it. It's been wonderful talking to you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to Nothing Ventured, an Emerge One production. We'd love to get your feedback and thoughts on our conversations, as well as topics or guests you'd love to hear from. Drop me a line on social media or via one of the links in the show notes. I mean, what have you got to lose, right?